Romans chapter 14, please. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have this opportunity. Thank you that we can sing of the justification and sanctification with which we've been blessed because of the work of Jesus Christ, because of your work in us by your spirit to make us alive. You have given us new birth, perfect confidence of what is to come. And you've also given us great instruction about what you want to accomplish in us in this life and what you will accomplish with certainty in the life to come. Thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. None of us really like being assessed. No one likes to stand before a panel of people and have them assess our work, assess our character, assess who we are. Um, There's a certain amount of mental anguish that results from being judged when someone else holds our fate in their hands. I remember having finished my doctoral project, feeling a great sense of relief, a lot of burden was lifted off of my shoulders, but I knew that there was still a defense of that project to come. And so in this defense, two professors from the seminary would read through my work, and they'd be able to challenge my theological propositions, the implementation of those proposals in the church, and then the conclusions that I had formed from that work. Uh, My project advisor had given me some feedback along the way, but not much in the way of critique, so I wasn't exactly sure what to expect. Um, If these men found fault with my project, I'd have to go back to the drawing board and uh, rework that project and, by the way, pay additional fees, not small ones, uh, in the process. Thankfully, they were happy with my work. and I didn't have to go through that process, Um, but it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable when someone is assessing your work. There's a a professor at that same seminary that is regularly judging people's sermons, and he he likens it to saying, I I feel like sometimes I have to call your baby ugly. Like, who wants, who wants that job of having to call your baby ugly? You put all this time and effort into it, and you, you let it go, and then they say, man, that, that was really bad. You, you missed the main point of the text. You didn't apply it right. There's all kinds of problems. Your baby is ugly. Um, so no one really likes to be the one that has to be hearing your baby is ugly. Um, there's a much more significant assessment coming. The judge is God. The subject will be our lives, and the assessment relates to our eternity. And by the way, there are no do-overs. We're in Romans chapter 14, and this concept comes up in the middle of the chapter. It is not the main idea of the chapter. This morning, we're going to spend all of our time considering this concept of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. 
But the main idea of this chapter, and it actually bleeds over into chapter 15, is the idea of welcoming one another, which we introduced last week. He tells us to welcome one another because we're God's servants. Uh, he tells us that in verses 1 through 9. Welcome one another, you are God's servants. And so just in, by way of some bullet points, we're not going to take the time to look at this. We'll have a little bit more of this uh, concept next week. Just bullet pointing through verses 1 through 9. Do not welcome one another to argue, verse 1. Do not welcome one another to despise, verse 2. Do not be welcomed or accept welcome in order to judge others, verse 2. Be fully convinced in your own mind about your actions, verses 5 and 22, and dwell together for the honor and thanksgiving of God. You see that in verses 6 through 9. So that's, that's that opening paragraph. Welcome one another. You're God's servants. We talked about that uh, quite a bit last week. Not the, not the individual elements, but who we are in God's eyes. This morning, we're going to talk about welcoming, welcoming one another because... You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Welcome one another because you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Look please with me at verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. And then each of us will give an account of himself to God. It is very natural for us to compare ourselves to one another, thus either lifting ourselves up in that compassion, excuse me, that comparison, or putting ourselves down in that comparison. This is natural. We do it without thinking. Are my muscles bigger than his? Is my belly bigger than his? Do I have less hair than he does? Do I have quite as many wrinkles as, you know, you, you know, you look around the room and there's automatically comparisons going on. This is normal. It's natural. But God warns us, he warns us, to avoid this way of thinking. So let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. God warns us about comparing ourselves with one another, essentially reminding us that the one another is not the standard by which we're compared. In 2 Corinthians 10, please take a look beginning at verse 12, and we're going to read right to the end of the chapter. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only, only boast with regard to the area of influence that God has assigned to us. So who, are we, who are we boasting in there? God, not us. God has assigned an area of influence, and so we boast in 
God in his assignment, and that is to reach even to you. Verse 14, for we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may feel good about ourselves. No, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, say it with me, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. It's natural to compare, but God says, don't do it. Take a look now at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul, here in this passage, again, is getting at this very same idea that what you have to say about me doesn't matter. In fact, he goes beyond that. What I have to say about me doesn't really matter. Yeah, so sometimes we look at ourselves in the mirror and we think worse about ourselves than other people think. That's me. And some people look in the mirror and think better of themselves than other people think. I've met some of those as well. Um, I tend to have the other problem where I think, oh, man, ooh, look at that. How can you, Amy, how can you stand to look at this face every day? Um, things like that. Um, so, like, that's, that's my problem. Other people have the other part of the problem. Nonetheless, it's a problem, right? Look at what he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and Stewards, overseers of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Will you read the rest with me, please? Verse 4. It is the Lord who judges me. What an important statement. There is a judgment coming. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2 and verse 2 that it is according to truth. Listen to what the Bible says. I'm using the King James Version because it communicates the the, the passage as clearly as possible. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. It's according to truth. God doesn't judge us arbitrarily. He judges us according to truth. He judges us according to what he has revealed. Everyone will stand before the judge. Did you know that? Everyone. That's me, and that's you. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, and verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes, or after that comes, judgment. In the same book, Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews said that God would judge his people, and then he follows it with this statement, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31. So what is within the scope of this judgment? Here's a number of items for your consideration. First of all, every careless word. 
The word careless is the Greek word argos. It's translated idle in some places, lazy in others, and useless in still other places. Unthinking, unfiltered words. So what I want you to think about right now is Facebook. Twitter, comments on a blog post. I want you to think about a telephone conversation or a text stream. These are areas that we can have unfiltered words, unthought out words. Get caught up in a moment and blah, 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 blah. Well, the Bible says that every careless word will be part of this judgment, as well as every deed Every deed. We read this at the end of Ecclesiastes in our study. It says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring, what does it say? Every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. These are elements of the judgment. The Bible also tells us in Romans chapter 2 and verse 16 that God will judge the secrets of men. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, the purposes of the heart. Not only what we say and what we do, but why we said and why we did. This is pretty intense, and this is pretty thorough, so we can say everything. Everything comes under this judgment. The Lord Jesus made this statement in Luke eight seventeen: For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts of thoughts, and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, so that's a lot, right? This is a heavy burden. Everything is under assessment. So let's think. And, And the way that we're going to talk about this over the next period of time is under the headings, the good... The bad, no, you got it wrong. I knew you'd get it wrong because I was going to use that and I decided to use a different term. The good, the bad, and the terrifying. Now, before I get started, I couldn't figure out where to inject this into our discussion, our study, but we're going to do it now. There is a difference, ladies and gentlemen, between standing before the judgment seat of Christ and receiving rewards and a difference between that and receiving an inheritance. Did you know if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, which means you've repented of your sin and you've turned to Jesus Christ as the only means of your eternal salvation, you are forever a brother of Jesus Christ. You are forever a son of God the Father. And you are forever a joint heir with Christ. This is true of every believer in Jesus Christ, we all will stand perfectly complete before Jesus Christ on that day of 
judgment because it is not about our works and deeds and words. It is about the works and deeds and words of the Lord Jesus Christ that have been placed, imputed to our account. There is, however, more to the story than that redemption, than that inheritance, and that completion. There is also an assessment of work. But we start with the good, the good, the good. The first term, or first item, excuse me, of good news regarding the judgment seat of God is the one who occupies the seat. You couldn't have better news than the one who occupies the seat of judgment. According to Romans chapter 2 and verse 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men, we say it, by Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John 5 and verse 22, for the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to, will you say it, the Son. And then Just a few verses later, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. At this judgment mentioned in Romans 14 and in 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus is said to sit on a Bema seat. A Bema seat. This is a seat of authority. Paul was brought before a Bema seat in Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 17. And Jesus was judged by Pilate as Pilate sat on a Bema seat. It's just crazy. Think about that just just for a moment. Jesus, the one who occupies the seat, standing before the seat. Of course, it was not nearly as impactful a seat as the seat that the Lord Jesus will sit on one day. But nonetheless, Jesus subjected himself to human authority and was judged from this position of authority on the earth. According to many, including John MacArthur, in Greek culture, Bema, the Bema seat, referred to the elevated platform on which victorious athletes received their crowns, much like the medal stand in the modern Olympic Games. So not only is it a seat of authority to judge someone for wrongdoing, it's also used in another setting where someone is credited with a victory. The one who sits on this seat as our judge is also our creator, according to I have just listed Colossians 1.16. You could add to the mix John 1 and Hebrews 1. The one who sits on this seat is our creator. He is also our sustainer, according to Colossians 1.17, as well as Hebrews chapter 1. He is also our redeemer. It's through the blood of Christ that all of our sins have been erased. It's not with, uh, with silver and gold that we've been redeemed from our former manner of life, but it's through the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Our Redeemer sits on that seat of judgment. Our mediator sits on that seat of judgment. There's one God. Sorry. Help me, please. Thank you. There's one God and 
One mediator. Thank you. I don't know where you lost it. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is not only our judge, but he's our mediator. He's also called our great high priest in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. And then, and this is the term that I want to spend a moment or two on, not only is our judge, our creator, sustainer, redeemer, mediator, and high priest, he is our advocate. Guess what? He plays a dual role. <laughs> judge and lawyer. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, the word propitiation, let's define it. It's a wrath-removing sacrifice. Propitiation, an easement or settlement of God's wrath against sin. The Bible tells us that God is angry with the sinfulness of the wicked, how often? Every day. But Jesus is the propitiation. He snuffs out that wrath, or better stated, satisfies that wrath of God against sin. This one who is our advocate has already satisfied the demands of the law and the demands of the judge. The judge is our advocate who has satisfied the terms that we have broken. This is glorious. This is good. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Now this same Greek word is used in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5 to reference the mercy seat in the holy place. I want you to think about this. This is, this is great word play that the Bible does for us. Jesus is our advocate, and he is the propitiation, settlement of God's wrath against our sin. And the Bible says, uh, uses the term propitiation as the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies. Now, what happened inside the Holy of Holies? Every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into, through the veil, into the Holy of Holies, only him, only once a year, and not without blood. And what he would do is he would sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat. And Jesus is said to be that mercy seat. So the one who sits on the judgment throne, the judgment seat, is himself the mercy seat. This is just glorious. This is the good. The good. In essence, the mercy seat sits on the judgment seat. The Savior is our judge. Paul revels in this fact in Romans chapter 8, which I want us to turn to, please. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. Romans chapter 8, we're going to start reading in verse 31. We'll read down through verse 34. We could read to the end of the chapter. We're not going to at this point. You can enjoy that later. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. The Bible says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us 
all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Listen, it is God who justifies. Someone brings a charge against God's elect. God justified. Justification is twofold. Remember this. It's the removal of our sin and the addition of Christ's righteousness. Who can bring a charge against a person who has all their sin removed and only the perfect righteousness of Christ available? What can you say against that person? You got it. Nothing. Nothing. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Oh, Christ can. He's the answer to the question. Christ is the one who can condemn. But it's also, he's also the one who died. More than that, who was raised. More than that, who is currently at the right hand of God and currently interceding for us. The one who could condemn you died for you. The one who could condemn you was raised as the first fruits of those that believe in him. And the one who can condemn you is praying for you right now. If you're a believer, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the one who can condemn you will not. Isn't that good news? This is the good. Through justification, or through the justification provided by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all of our sins have been accounted for. Not swept under the rug, accounted for. They will not, they will not be brought to our attention on the judgment day. They've been paid for. God tells us this in numerous places. I will share just two of them. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins. Say it. And then in Hebrews 10, 17, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds. Say it with me. No more! No more! No more! No more! Oh, there's going to be a big, big screen in heaven, and God is going to show everyone all of your dirty little secrets. Have you heard that before? I have. That is not accurate. That is inaccurate. Sins forgiven are sins accounted for. Not swept under the rug, accounted for. It stands finished. I am complete. Complete in Christ. Have you experienced this forgiveness? Have you experienced this accounting of your sin? Paul indicates beautifully in the context of judgment, this is in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, each one, each one will receive his commendation from God. That was, remember, I don't care if you judge me or any human court judges me, I don't even judge myself. The one who judges me is God. And each one, this is talking about believers now, each one will stand before the Lord and each one 
will receive commendation, not by the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter, but by God. <laughs> this, this is unfathomable. This is the good. We need, we need to hear the good. The Bible tells us in Revelation 22 and verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly, speaking of Jesus, and my reward is with me to, gi to give to everyone according to his work. This is talking about his believers, those that, that, that are in him, his brethren. I have my reward with me. This is the good. Now we have to talk about the bad. Um, it's important. It's really important that we talk not only about the good, but about the bad. 2 Corinthians, please, chapter 5. 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. We're going to pick it right up in the middle of this chapter at verse 8. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, our desires to please God, whether we're in his presence or in his physical presence or in only his, um, his everywhere presence, whether we're in the presence of the Lord there or in the presence of the Lord here. Did you know you can't get out of the presence of the Lord? He's everywhere. Even if you make your, your bed in Sheol, he's there. So there's no getting away from his presence. But in his presence in glory or in his presence on earth, we make it our aim to please him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or, some versions say bad. The word in the Greek is phalos, phalos or phalos. It means worthless. We've already seen that our sins will not be brought to our attention. And he is talking directly to believers. If we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord, right? That's the whole concept. Earlier he says we're not going to live out eternity without a, a house, a dwelling place. We will, we will have a, a body, a new body given to us by God. So he's talking about being in the presence of God. He's talking about believers. Now he's saying there's an assessment that we all stand before this judgment seat, this Bema seat of Christ, or, um, and, and that we're going to receive something. We're going to receive something that is due for what we have done, whether it's good or, here it says evil, we'll say phalos, phalos, which means worthless. There are actions that we take in this life that are unfruitful and unworthy of reward. The Bible says in 2 John verse 8, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a, what does it say, full reward. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 beginning in verse 5. Again, we're going to cut right into the middle of this. He says, what then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. 
So I just want to recap that little section. God gives growth. God gives the assignment. God gives the rewards. God's fellow workers you are. God's field you are. God's building you are. That's how that, that verse reads in the Greek. God's fellow workers you are. God's field you are. God's building you are. What or who is the emphasis of that paragraph? Anyone? Class? Bueller? Anyone? Anyone? Who, who's the subject? God is the subject. God doing this work. The emphasis of the paragraph is upon God and bringing things to pass and God's work. As you look a little further now, beginning at verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Some will receive rewards for... Spirit-enabled faithfulness. Now, he's very specific. He's talking about God's work. And so there's a lot more to do with churches and and people coming to Christ and serving in the church than there is about um, individual um, helping an old lady across the street kind of deeds. But the idea is very self-apparent that God is going to assess the kinds of things we're doing. Now, he's specifically talking about ministry here. And if uh, ministries endure, that it den- demonstrates that God was the one that was using a person, was assigning a person to plant and water, and God was a person that was bringing forth an increase, and therefore that thing endured, as opposed to someone doing it their own way. That's a different story for a different day. Some will receive rewards for spirit-enabled faithfulness, and some will see their efforts burned up because they were flesh enabled living, flesh-enabled living, as opposed to spirit-enabled faithfulness. Samuel Hoyt, he wrote an incredible, you would call it a blog post today, but it's old, so it was a journal article. Samuel Hoyt wrote an incredible journal article about the negative aspects of the judgment. I'm going to steal, giving him credit, a number of items from that article, which you will be um, edified by. He wrote this, An unfaithful Christian receives the appropriate recompense for that which is worthless, namely, no recompense at all. So this is bringing our minds back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We'll receive the things done in our body, whether they're good or worthless. So the worthless things seem to burn up here as uh, wood, hay, and stubble, or wood, hay, and straw. 
Those things burned up. There's no recompense. There's no reward. That would be very similar to losing reward in 2 John chapter 8. Here he calls it a suffering, a loss in verse 15. Take a look at 1 John chapter 2. This is one of the challenging verses for me as I have tried to understand the judgment. And this has been going on for a number of years now as I see the the impact of justification by faith, sanctification by faith, and glorification by faith, and the, the certainty of having been made complete in Christ, and that God is the one that will sanctify us in body, soul, and spirit, that God does all of this work, that um, all of us are joint heirs with Christ. One of the verses of Scripture that, that I've had to wrestle with and, and, and grapple with is this passage in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. And I think where, where I, I see a, a division is a difference, and I mentioned it earlier, between an inheritance that is given and rewards that are conveyed for spirit-enabled faithfulness. There is a difference between those things. Not a lot of material that the Bible gives us to differentiate between those. So we're working through some, some areas where there's going to be disagreement from one theologian to another. That's okay. You've got to stand accountable for yourself before the Lord on how you understand these things, right? You won't stand accountable for how I assess it, how I understand it. You'll stand accountable for how... You understand it. So make sure in your assessment of these things that you're letting the Word of God speak and not your, your own opinion or some theological giant somewhere. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. And now, little children. Who's he talking to? Believers or unbelievers? <laughs> Clearly? All right. Now, little children, abide in him. If we heard about that before, John chapter 15. Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I mean, the last thing in the whole wide world I want to do is to shrink back from him at his coming. I don't want to have the laid back stance, I want the, the lean in stance. I'm coming in for everything I can get. I want my eyes in His. I want my head lifted up. I want my mouth ready to speak freely as is spoken of elsewhere. Confidence, in fact, is spoken of here. Confidence, confident speech. Same word as Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Coming to the throne of God with boldness. I want freedom of speech when I stand before God. For Christ it is coming. I don't want to shrink back in shame. He's talking to believers. There's a possibility of, of a confident assertion at that day. And there's confidence of a shrinking back. Shamed. Shame. Samuel Hoyt does a, a nice job giving us something to think about with this in this regard. The cause of shame at the judgment seat of Christ apparently arises from the believer's own realization of sin, unfaithfulness, and neglected opportunities rather than from being rebuked by Christ. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I think there's this 
in inner recognition as we watch the pile <laughs> go from, from here to here as the fire reveals some of the fruitlessness and you think, Lord, that wasn't what I intended. I, I, wanted, I wanted to yield myself fully to you on Monday morning and on Monday night and all the hours in between on Tuesday morning and Tuesday night and all the hours in between. I don't think this is a reference to Jesus saying, now, now. This is more a recognition as we stand there. Hmm. So much more. So much more could have been accomplished by God's Spirit in me and through me. We need to think about these things. Because when, when we're there in the presence of the Lord Jesus at that assessment, what can we do about it then but shrink back? But here and now, as we're talking about the good, you know, we all rejoice in that, and then the bad, ooh, this is going to be an assessment. Maybe, maybe my allocation of time and funds and resources Maybe the allocation is kind of skewed in the wrong direction. And so we, we take these things in and, and consider it. Still later, Samuel Hoyt writes, the judgment seat of Christ might be compared to a commencement ceremony. At graduation, there is some measure of disappointment and remorse that one did not do better or work harder. However, at such an event, the overwhelming emotion is joy, not remorse. The graduates do not leave the auditorium weeping because they did not earn better grades. Rather, they are thankful that they have been granted or, or they have been graduated. And uh, they are grateful for what they did achieve. To overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat of Christ is to make heaven hell. To underdo, is what it should have said, to underdo the aspect, uh, sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential. Let's think of it this way. There is a day when rewarded that the people of God will cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus for his glory and his honor. The Bible tells us in a number of places, I'll just mention a few, Daniel chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 13, the righteous will reflect the glory of God and his Christ throughout eternity. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the resurrection passage. Don't, don't fade out on me. This is important. Ratchet your attention up. In 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection passage, there's this nugget thrown right toward the three-quarter part of it. Verses 40 through 42. Listen to what it says. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly body is one kind, of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For stars differ, or, or for one star differs for, from another star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Now, this is just a, you've got to try to do something with that passage. There's, there's a lot to it. 
But in my assessment of it and how I understand it, he's talking about the brilliance of those stars and how one can stand out more than another. They're both glorious, but one can stand out more than another. And in the resurrection of the dead, some of us will have some way in which we might reflect the glories of God and Christ more brilliantly throughout eternity. Now, I just want you to think about this. Now, did you, out, did you look in a mirror this morning? Did you? Probably so. Want to make sure you shaved properly, put your makeup on properly, your hair is just right. Mine looks really good. My wife cut it for me last night. It's, it's nice. Um, I stared at that thing for a long time. No, I don't think there are mirrors in heaven. Do you? So it's not like, okay, your assessment, here's your assessment, and now here's your reflective ability. You're a 60 water. <laughs> and, and so you go and you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, only 60 watts? That's not what eternity is about. You might see someone else's 200 water and be like, wow. But what are you wowing at? What are they reflecting? The glory of God and of his Christ. For how long? Forever. It's not comparing ourselves among ourselves, which is not wise. It's gaining a greater glimpse of the glory of Almighty God, who we'll see with our eyes as well, and, and see people reflecting the glory of God and of his Christ as well. So we're not looking around like, oh, man, woe is me. I didn't get as much at the judgment seat as I wished that I had, and I don't reflect quite as much as I wish I had. This, heaven is not about sorrow. Heaven is about glory and joy. But that doesn't mean that at that moment that we stand before the judge, we won't have reason for shrinking back. But it calls us right now to, to order our lives in such a way that we want, we want to reflect Christ to the fullest possible capacity. Don't you? Now and then, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. I want Christ to be magnified whether through life or through death. That's all that matters. That's the end game, the real one, the real end game, not the fake one. No one will be wallowing around in heaven, but this should not deter us from seeking to reflect the glory of God to the highest degree possible. He is worthy of this. So we have talked thus far about the good. Our Savior sits on the judgment seat and all of our sins have been accounted for. We've talked about the bad. We will stand accountable for our lives uh, are we living by the Spirit or trudging along in the flesh? But now we must talk about one other element, and that is the terrifying. While the believer, that's me, I hope it's you as well, the believer has no fear of condemnation on the day of judgment, there is another judgment for those who have not repented of their sin and trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. For those outside of the salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ, the day of judgment, the Bible calls a day of wrath. You need to know this. There is a day of wrath coming. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6, but because of your hard 
an impenitent heart, a non-repentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works later in that same chapter. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek. God is indiscriminate. He is not partial to the impenitent, unrepentant, one who refuses to obey the truth of the gospel. There is a day of wrath, and it is unlike anything that any of us could even imagine. God gives us a glimpse of it that our human mind can try to grapple with, but it is far more devastating than we could even estimate. Let's look, please, just for a moment. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. The Apostle John uses a different descriptor than the Bema seat. He uses the term the great white throne. It says that I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Who, who do you think was sitting there? It's Jesus, right? Because God has committed all judgment to his son. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. All of the old things have passed away, essentially. And I saw the dead. Is that a descriptor of God's people? We're alive forevermore. Yes? We are the, uh, the living. I saw the dead, great and small. That means everybody. Standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged, judged by what was written in the, say it with me, books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a fiery judgment. And it's a judgment according to the books, plural, the works. The works. Your works have been measured and they have been found wanting from Daniel. Remember that? Your works will not measure up to the righteous standard of God and of his Christ. So the works are assessed. Those who were, whose names were not in the book of life, it says in verse 15, if their name was not in the book of life, they were thrown, cast into the lake of fire. Why? Why? Why is this? Why is this? Well, listen to what God says through Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and following. It says, in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You see, Revelation 20 is depicting a day when those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and lived in accordance with their own purposes and in accordance with the standards that they saw fit will stand against judgment and that judgment will not go well for them. This is the terrifying. This is terrifying. I refrain from the word ugly because nothing that God does is ugly. But it is terrifying. What is the solution for this? You see, here we are in time and space. We're not at that great white throne. What is the solution? How does one avoid this vengeance and wrath? How does one have his name or her name written in the book of life? Very simple. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent. Turn from your sin and believe the gospel. Jesus came and he lived a perfect, righteous life in your stead. He then willingly laid his life down as a wrath-removing sacrifice. We call that propitiation for your sin. He was buried and on the third day, God raised him from the dead as the firstfruits of those who slept in Christ. In other words, all who repent and believe will also be raised to everlasting life and will not be one of the dead that stands at that judgment seat. We will not be condemned with the world. I beg you this morning, repent, repent, and believe the gospel. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the Bible says further in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the question is, saved from what? A fearful, fiery, Judgment, the just judgment for sin. The salvation offered to you through the Lord Jesus Christ removes the fear of a terrifying judgment that would result in your eternal condemnation. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you turned from your sin and turned to Jesus for your only means of eternal salvation? Yes, yes, there is therefore Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I will one day stand perfectly robed in the righteousness of Christ. I do not have to fear standing in his presence, but there will be an assessment. There will be an assessment before the judge. And all of this in Romans chapter 14 is to call you and I to look at each other differently, to welcome one another as we've been welcomed. I don't mean to be rude, but you are no day at the beach, nor am I, and God welcomed me. Well, since that's true of us individually, knowing, looking in this way, 
How about when we look out that way? Well, there are no day at the beach either. But you know what? If God has welcomed them, should I not welcome them? We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We'll receive the things done in our body, whether they're good or worthless. How about standing before him, having embraced one another lovingly, not for disputes, not to despise, not to judge one another, but to live out this life, helping one another pursue Christ-likeness. We're going to be different in the way we think, in the way we talk, things we do. Someday none of that's going to matter, right? Some of those differences, what difference does any of it make? Some of us have uh, different cultural backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds. What difference does any of that make? Maybe it means something to you, and I don't mean to belittle whatever you feel about your cultural background. What I mean is, that's, that's not a determining factor about glory. The Bible lets us know that there are going to be people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are standing around the throne, sitting around the throne, worshiping God. All of those racial distinctions, while maybe they will be um, seen, that's not the point. The point is looking away from us and toward him as a people redeemed by God's grace. So, here and now, what does all this mean to us? There's that day's coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? The good, the bad, the terrifying. We don't need terror. The gospel has been offered to all. Respond accordingly. and We can look forward to this day with great joy and anticipation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Continue to minister your grace in us. In Jesus' name, amen.